Here we go. West Hills Friends is a Quaker meeting in Portland, Oregon. You can find more information about our community at westhillsfriends.org. As a Quaker community, we encourage everyone to share from their hearts, especially as it pertains to God's leading in their lives. These words are shared into a community that values the opportunity to respond and dialogue about what is said. The responses and dialogue are not included in this recording. The views expressed in this content are solely those of the original contributors. And do not necessarily speak for the entire West Hills Friends community. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day. The scripture reading today comes from Luke's Gospel. When Jesus noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place. So when your host comes, your host will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to the host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brother or sister, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. This is Syria. I want to believe something like this could never happen where I live. We're not fighters. The heart of my city is a used bookstore. We like food carts and craft beer I'd say we have two defining statues in Portland. One of them is a 50-foot goddess. She holds a trident in one hand. The other statue is a normal-looking guy with an umbrella in one hand. For Portlanders, holding an umbrella is only slightly more common than holding a trident. <laughs> and yet these are the statues that we have chosen as symbols of our city. We delight in our quirkiness. I want to believe that we would rather go to brunch than go to war. I want to believe that war is something foreign to us. It happens in places like Syria or Colombia or Sri Lanka. I want to believe that war grows in a different climate. It is fertilized by a different way of thinking. 
I want to believe these things, but I don't. My country has been at war for over 15 years. Those who will graduate from high school this year will have only known a country at war. The name of my country is engraved on rockets and drones and shells. That ordinance has been in active use for 15 years. My country believes in war. I have to admit this about my country. And I have to admit that other countries are not as foreign as I want to believe. A few weeks ago, I heard a Syrian speaking on the radio. By the sound of her voice, I could tell that she was young. It struck me that this young woman had learned English. She had been trained as an architect. She was smart and creative. This young woman could have been my neighbor. I could imagine her standing in line with me at Powell's Books. I could imagine sitting next to her at Pip's original. Like me, she found the destruction of her city unthinkable. But she was from the city of Homs. For her, the unthinkable had come to pass. That's Homs. Homs has been decimated. The old city was completely destroyed. I'm still thinking about this Syrian architect, and it's not because of what she lost. It's because she had the courage to ask the obvious question. She said, when I look at my destroyed city, of course I ask myself, what has led to this senseless war? She asked, how did this happen? In her experience, Syria had always been comfortable with its diversity. For generations, Syria has been home to Orthodox Christians and Sunni Muslims. It has been home to the Druze and Alawites. Mosques and churches were built back to back. People from different backgrounds all came together in the marketplace. Her description of Syria didn't sound like some special climate for war. It sounded like walking around the Portland farmer's market on Saturday morning. So what happened? The Syrian architect admitted to the complexity of her situation. There's no simple answer. But then she went on to say, architecture in my country has played an important role in creating, directing, and amplifying conflict between warring factions. And this is probably true for other countries as well. As John Woolman might say, the seeds of war can be sown in our urban planning. Like most places around the world, the old parts of Syria were torn down. Cities were redesigned for cars and trucks. Those in power wanted a more efficient system. They built towers of gray cement around the urban center. Instead of living together in the center of the city, people moved to the periphery where it was less expensive. 
Each subgroup moved into its own building or set of buildings. And suddenly, people identified with their enclaves rather than with the city as a whole. The Syrian architect said, again, an amazing quote, tower blocks, even when they are luxurious, tend to promote isolation and otherness. It turns out that isolating people in different towers of gray cement cement makes it easier to identify the problem as those people over there. The design itself is a precursor to war. As an architect, this remarkable young woman was already thinking about what it will mean to rebuild Syria. She wants to see more public space. She wants to see more overlap. She wants to see more common ground. For her, this isn't a matter of aesthetics. It's not about fueling the economy. As someone who literally lives in the rubble of her destroyed city, she is thinking about what it takes for people to live together in peace. What can we do to strengthen our sense of common ground? What if instead of spending trillions of dollars on the tools of war, we invested in what brings us together? We rarely ask, what is it that brings people together? For at least 500 years, the church has invested more in dividing people than in bringing people together. Our priority has been to sort people according to what they believe. Each church for its own distinct category of people. We could make a flow chart. In fact, someone has made a flow chart. There are plenty of astonishing claims on the internet, but this is one of my favorites. Quote, even if you don't know what faith you are, belief omatic knows, This website goes on to say, answer 20 questions about your concept of God, the afterlife, human nature, and more, and Belief-O-Matic, registered trademark, will tell you what religion, if any, you practice or ought to be practicing. <laughs> Thanks to modern technology, we can sort people into different religions based on 20 questions. And those questions are about your concept of God, your concept of the afterlife, and so on. People are sorted by the ideas in their heads. Our perception of church is that it's primarily about how you think and people who think different than you belong in a different church. People who go to church make this assumption and people who don't go to church make this assumption. Last summer, a concerned citizen wrote across our church parking lot with a piece of sidewalk chalk. Someone wrote, stop brainwashing your children. 
Because obviously we're here to make sure that all of our children think like we do. Because obviously the church is about making sure everyone thinks the same. Although we tend to incorporate stained glass and vaulted ceilings into the overall design, we have come to believe that churches are gray cement towers of uniform thinking. We have built an inner landscape that segregates us into different ways of thinking. Tower blocks, even when they are luxurious, tend to promote isolation and otherness. Maybe there was a time when it made sense to divide ourselves in this way. Maybe there was a time when we could find so much common ground in other aspects of our life. It made sense for us to segregate ourselves by religious concepts. I'm willing to accept that maybe there was a time for this, but that time is over. We need a new understanding of what it means to be the church. We're not here for the sake of division. Let's not come here thinking that we have left common ground behind us. Let's come here to share in the work of building common ground. Even if gray is a Quaker color, let's not build another tower of gray cement. Let's build a table where everyone can gather. Let's build a garden where everyone can find rest. Let's invest in bringing people together and figure out what that would really look like. The prophetic edge of God's kingdom is to move against the tide of further and deeper segregation. Here, we should be doing the work of living together our work is to listen with humility. Our work is to welcome without favoritism. Our work is to seek understanding. It is to serve. God is not revealed in our sameness. God is revealed in the way we create space for one another. God is revealed when we become humble. Over the last few years, I've had plenty of opportunities to speak with people who disagree with me sharply. And I've learned that when we really make space for each other, we create a sacred space. What would it look like for us to see the church as common ground. Does this vision of the church speak to your condition? How can you build a landscape of common ground here and in other aspects of your life?